Well, turn back with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. We're going to be studying today verses 12 to 33. Genesis 26 verses 12 to 33. We're thinking today about the life of Isaac. And as we think about the life of Isaac, we see Isaac in the world, but not of the world. Isaac in the world, but not of the world. That was something that the Lord Jesus prayed for his disciples the night before he was put to death on the cross. He prayed that though we are in the world, that we would not be of the world, that we are not like the world in every respect, and certainly not in the most important respects. And Isaac, as we'll see today, is an example of that to us. Isaac in the world, not of the world. Well, before you go and spend time in a new place, it's helpful to know what you can expect when you are there, when, when you go there. Uh, boys and girls, maybe some of you have gone on school trips. Maybe you've gone to the zoo or your school has taken you to interesting places like W5 or somewhere where you can learn more about science or history. And before you leave, the teacher tells you all about what will happen, what you're to do, when you need to be listening, uh, maybe what you're not allowed to do or what you're allowed to do when you get there. Uh, older folk, maybe you've gone on holiday overseas or you've gone on a mission trip overseas. And before you go, you have a bit of a briefing. Uh, you need to know what it's going to be like. Uh, how's it going to be different from what you're used to, what you're going to be doing, how to navigate your way through it. If we're Christians here this morning, one of the things that the Bible makes crystal clear to us is that this world where we've been born, where we grew up, where we live and work, this world is in fact not our home. We're actually strangers. We are foreigners passing through this world. And actually, the longer you're a Christian, the less like home this world is going to feel. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, the Christian does not in the fullest sense belong to this world. We live in a part of the world where people take their citizenship very seriously. They're very proud of their particular citizenship. Uh, and our, our national identity, our, our national citizenship is important. But for the Christian, it's not all important. We know that we don't truly belong in this world. We belong in a different world. But nonetheless, we have to live in this world for probably quite some time, at least a long time from our perspective, a few decades most likely. And the question is, what can we expect while we're here? What can we expect in this world that is not our home? Isaac was a pilgrim believer just like us. We're maybe tempted to think that these patriarchs like Isaac, they, they were so long ago, they're so far away from us in time and in space. Uh, what do we really have in common with them? We're New Testament believers. We can't really identify with these patriarchs, these nomads who had to hike around the world looking for wells and all the rest of it. What do we really have to learn from them? Well, I trust we'll see today that Isaac's life and experiences are, are right up to date. They, 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 are, they, they give us plenty to think about and identify with as followers of Christ living in this world today. And so let's think, first of all, today, uh, as we think about Isaac in the world, not of the world, uh, what can we expect in this world? Well, first of all, we can expect God's promises to be partially fulfilled in this world. God's promises partially fulfilled in this world. 
we thought about this more last week, but Isaac is the recipient of special, precious promises from God. Just look back at chapter 26, verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, God says to Isaac. And he goes on to say, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And we thought last week about how those promises very much overlap and interweave with the promises God made to his father, Abraham. Now, these are promises, friends, on a large scale. These are promises to God, from God to Isaac for the long term, as some of the best promises are. If you've made marriage vows, or if you've taken baptismal vows, not just as parents of, of infant children, but also as members of this church, when you have opportunity to take vows for a covenant child, that they are promises that, we, yes, we begin to fulfill them now, but they're really promises for the long term as well. And so were the promises that God made to Isaac. They actually have their greatest fulfillment, their, if I can say it, their fullest fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. But the promises God made to Isaac, friends, were not just for the long term. They were promises that would be at least partially fulfilled during Isaac's own lifetime. Again, just look at chapter 26, verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. How did God fulfill that promise? Well, look at verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. That's a miraculously large harvest, especially coming out of a time or maybe still in a time of famine nearby, a hundredfold. One writer says Isaac was ludicrously, ludicrously successful at farming. In fact, I think that was Davis from the book I mentioned earlier that said that. He was ludicrously successful at farming, miraculously successful. Why, was that? Why is that? Why is it that as soon as Isaac turns his hands to crops in this land, he's successful? Well, verse 12, because the Lord blessed him. God did exactly for Isaac what he promised to do for him. Just look at verse 13. The man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. God's promises to Isaac, friends, were partially fulfilled and wonderfully fulfilled even in his own lifetime. Years later, and it is years later, God repeats his promises to Isaac. Verse 24, and this, of course, comes after a time of testing and trial for him, but he says in verse 24, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. Same promise he made back in verse 3. He makes it again in verse 24. And it's important for us to realize, friends, that those promises come most likely decades apart. We always have to be switched on as we read these large chunks of narrative in the Bible about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Huge chunks of time are passing. 
In the case of Isaac here, likely decades are flying past. His life was difficult in some respects, as we'll consider in a moment. But during his life in this world, friends, Isaac saw the promises of God at least partially fulfilled. He saw the promises fulfilled when he looked out at his fields, bursting with crops. He saw God's promises fulfilled, perhaps most wonderfully, the day that Rebekah finally came and said to Isaac, I'm pregnant. He saw them fulfilled with every successful transaction carried out, every new employee added to his staff, every business venture successful. The Lord blessed him in the land. And I want to be careful as I apply God's word here. It would be wrong on the basis of what we've seen in Isaac's life to start claiming that, that being a Christian is a path to guaranteed success, health, and wealth. That, that's a false gospel. Some of you know very well the, the harmful impacts of that false gospel around the world today. The Christian life is not promised a free pass at the problems of this life. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that in this world, quote, we will have many troubles. And Isaac, as we'll see, had his fair share of troubles. But friends, it is also true that even as we live in this world here and now, Christians can expect to see a measure of blessing. Even that we should expect to see the promises of God being fulfilled. For example, as we thought about last Lord's Day evening in Proverbs, if we trust in God's way for our marriages, they should be blessed marriages. Not because we are perfect people, far from it. Not because we never are going to face any bumps in the roads in our marriages, far from it. But because we are loving one another with Christ-like love, we're conducting our marriages in the way God instructs us to. And God will bless that. If we approach our work the way God commands us to, doing it wholeheartedly, doing it out of a sense of serving God and not just ourselves or our teacher, if we're boys and girls, or our employer, then God will bless that work. I can think of, I can think of at least three Christian friends who recently have told me that they've secured excellent employment and their employers advertised the job with them in mind they wanted these people in these posts now again a christian is not guaranteed success every time they go for a job interview in fact there are times when being a christian might mean that you're overlooked quite deliberately for a particular job but oftentimes christians experience a measure of blessing from god even in this world, whether it's in family life, in work life, in church life. Now, when God brings sickness or unemployment or bereavement or, or some form of difficulty into our lives, we know that he has a purpose in that. And he doesn't necessarily bring those things into our lives because of some sin that we need to repent of. That's not always the case. The book of Job shows us that, of course. God may have other purposes in it. We know that by enduring trials, we will receive, as Paul says, the eternal crown of life. But we also know 
that the food on our plates and the clothes on our backs and the job that we have to go out to and the friends and family and church family by our side, they are partial fulfillments here and now, friends, of God's eternal promises to bless his people. Do we acknowledge all God's good blessings to us and our families? We're quick to question where is God when things go wrong? Do we praise him and thank him when things are going well? As they often are for many of us. It's not that we're problem free, but we have much to be thankful for. Psalm 112, which God willing will sing from this evening. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forevermore. Think of those words, not just for the here and now, but their eternal significance. Was the Lord Jesus wealthy and rich? Did the Lord Jesus have offspring of his own physically? No, he did not. But today the Lord Jesus is more wealthy and more righteous and more blessed and has more spiritual offspring than anyone in the history of the world. He is the blessed man who feared the Lord and greatly delighted in his commandments. And so sooner or later, friends, whether partially now or fully in eternity, God will bless his people. The partial, uh, God's, God's promises partially fulfilled in this world. But then we see too, as we look at the experience of Isaac in the second place, that we can expect pressure from pagan neighbors in this world. Uh, pressure from pagan neighbors in this world. At the end of verse 14 tells us that the Philistines envied Isaac for this buildup of wealth and success that he enjoyed. And their envy comes out in their actions. If you look at verse 15. Verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we we have there a bit of a foreshadowing of what would one day happen to Isaac's descendants, the Israelites. It got to the point where Pharaoh eventually said to the, to the Israelites, go away from us. Uh, you're too powerful for us. And here the Philistines want to drive Isaac out, which is why they fill up Abraham's wells with earth. That was actually a violation of an agreement that Abraham had made with the Philistines. You can read about that back in Genesis chapter 21. But according to the terms of an agreement that Abraham reached with the Philistines, they were to allow Abraham's descendants to continue to use these wells. But at some point, of course, Abraham passes away. Isaac becomes so powerful, the Philistines are so jealous that they try to force him out by cutting off his water supply. Different times in history, people have been driven off land by having their homes burned down. And I would imagine there's probably still some parts of the world where that might be the case. And the message is very clearly communicated to the people. There's nothing here for you. We don't want you here. You have no claim to this place anymore. Go away. And that's what these Philistines were doing to Isaac. They're, they're driving him away by filling up the wells of Abraham. 
And they keep doing it for a while, no matter where Isaac turns. Verse 17, he moves away from the main settlement in Gerar. He goes out into the valley. When his servants dig wells there, the locals make trouble for him. Verse 20, the water is ours. Verse 21, Isaac's servants move to another new spot. The same thing happens again. Isaac actually names these areas after the problems that he has there, Essek and Sitna, which mean contention and enmity. Some places or, or, or some events, you, you just have to say the name and immediately people know what you're talking about. It brings to their minds the trauma or the difficulty of it. 9-11, Auschwitz. There's a, a good movie came out a few years ago simply called Dunkirk. And the name Dunkirk alone for several generations of people in our nation uh, brings to mind unforgettable events. And here Isaac remembers these places for the, the pressure and the aggravation and the opposition that he faced in them. And as we've hinted at already, friends, this is also the experience of Christians in the world to one degree or another. Partial uh, fulfillment of promises, but also pressure from pagan neighbors. We were praying last week for Arab world ministries, Christians living and witnessing in parts of the world drastically different from our part of the world. Places where you could be driven out of your home or of your job or of your community simply for speaking, simply for being a Christian rather. We're all familiar with the efforts that have been made in our own country even in recent years to, to silence Bible-believing Christians, to, to push to the margins the ethics and morality of Bible-believing Christians. Uh, recently, it's taken the form of this so-called conversion therapy ban, which is a claim to outlaw practices that are you know, manipulative and forceful. But in fact, some of the campa campaigners for the so-called conversion therapy ban, they've actually said they want to eradicate, quote, the pernicious practice of prayer. So they don't even want us praying with someone, never mind preaching to someone to repent. Thankfully, that the latest version of that uh, bill was soundly defeated in Westminster on Friday, but no doubt it will keep coming back a few times more. Boys and girls, some of you in your schools, in your friendship circles, maybe you, you have or maybe you will find yourself driven away, pushed out from, by certain friends because you're not going to the places they want you to go to. You're, you're not meeting them online in the places they want, them, they want you to meet them. You're not laughing at the things they laugh at. You're not living the way that they live. And you might find yourself driven away from certain people. Some of you older men and women here this morning, I wonder, do you realize that it may be that you have pagan neighbors who envy you? Have you ever thought about that as a Christian? That there might be unbelievers who envy you. The Philistines envied Isaac. You think, well, why would anyone envy me? <laughs> uh, I'm not a millionaire. I'm an ordinary looking uh, person. There's nothing extraordinary or no great gifting about me. Make no mistake, friends, the contentment of a Christian, the, the sense of purpose, the sense of hope, the sense of peace that a Christian has, the world at times can be envious of that. And it might even cause them to 
take swipes, to spread gossip, to bring pressure to bear. Isaac's life in this world is the pattern of our lives too, friends. Blessed, but quite possibly at times banished. Loved by God, sometimes hated by the world. And again, it was the pattern of life for Isaac's descendants, the Israelites, who ended up pushed out of Egypt and thirsty in the wilderness, just as Isaac and his servants might have been thirsty at times because of these stopped-up wells. And it was the pattern of life, too, for the Lord Jesus, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, one from whom men hid their faces. Jesus knew what it was like to be thirsty because the world drove him away, even drove him to a cross. We follow a persecuted, despised, rejected Savior. If ever the world brings the same kind of pressure upon us that it brought upon him, we should consider ourselves honored to suffer as he did. And even if we do suffer, like Isaac, we carry on living in faith, clinging to God's precious promises. That's what Isaac did here. As we see in the third place, the priority of a pilgrim's worship in this world. The priority of a pilgrim's worship in this world. It's been pointed out that for most of chapter 26, Isaac doesn't seem to stand up for himself. Abimelech goes out of his way to, uh, to get rid of Isaac, to push him away from where he wants him to be. Verse 16, Isaac just goes along with it. No protest, no refusal. These quarrels break out over wells. Again, Isaac just moves on a time or two. He doesn't, doesn't kick up a fuss. He, he doesn't protest. At first, he, he does redig Abraham's wells and rename them. But, but some writers say, well, why doesn't he stand up for himself? This is the promised land. This is Abraham and Isaac's land. He has a legal right to these wells. Why doesn't Isaac stand up for himself? Well, actually, it's exactly... The, the fact that God had promised these lands to Isaac, friends, that's exactly why Isaac does the things that he does in this chapter. He doesn't make a fuss. He doesn't answer aggression with aggression because he trusts that sooner or later, God will give him all these lands. There's a difference between weakness and meekness. If you're weak, then when someone attacks you, you don't have the strength, you don't have the physical strength or the moral will to speak up or fight back. But if you're meek, it's not that you don't have the strength. It's simply that you choose not to use it. That's meekness. Our Lord Jesus could have come down from the cross. He did not lack the strength but he chose not to. David could have killed Saul twice when Saul was sinfully trying to kill David, but David chose not to. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is part of mature Christian faith. Isaac didn't take on the Philistines here because he knew that he didn't need to. God had already blessed him in the land, and God will continue to provide for him when and how God sees fit. And we see little signs of Isaac living by faith all through this passage. He settles in Gerar, verse 6, as we saw last week, 
That was a direct act of obedience and faith in response to what God had told them to do. He redigs Abraham's wells, wells and renames them as Abraham had named them. A little act of faith, a little claim to the land. Even if he doesn't kick up a fuss about losing the wells or getting moved off the wells, he, a little act of faith, this is our land. He moves on when the quarreling begins, yes. But when he finally gets rest and peace and space, look what he says in verse 22. Verse 22. For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. That's a statement of faith. We shall be fruitful in the land. It doesn't matter what our pagan neighbors are doing to pressure us or push us around. God has blessed us. He will bless us. His words there echo the words of the psalmist that we thought about at the beginning of our service. The earth has yielded its increase. Psalm 67, God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Notice too how Isaac responds when God confirms his covenant promises to him. Verse 24. Uh, rather, sorry, God confirms the promises. Verse 24. Look how Isaac responds in verse 25. So he built there an altar and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Isaac at this point is settled in Beersheba, the same place where Abraham had made a treaty with the Philistines many years before. And Ralph Davis suggests that we take note of that little ordinary word there in verse 25. Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord there, and his servants dug a well there. There in Beersheba, Isaac stopped. He found some space, he got some rest, and there he worshipped God. And once again, we're invited to think back to Abraham, who in chapter 12, verse 8, chapter 13, verse 18, chapter 21, verse 32, in all those places, Abraham stopped and built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. An altar in that time and place, friends, was a way of publicly worshipping God. Let's not have the mistaken notion that in recent years, the sort of individualistic Christianity would encourage us to have, that the Old Testament patriarchs sort of kept up a, a sort of a private version of the faith that we now have, that it's only now today in the church age, in the, in the post-Jesus coming era, that we've taken our faith public. It was always a public faith. Calvin says, because religion ought to maintain a testimony before men. In other words, because our faith ought to be a public faith. Isaac, having erected and consecrated an altar to profess himself a worshiper of the true and only God. In other words, it's by building this altar that Isaac makes known the God that he worships. And so in the midst of whether it's the blessing or whether it's the banishment, whether it's promises partially fulfilled or whether it's pressure from pagans, Isaac follows the example of his father and publicly worships God. Whether you feel blessed or banished today, whether you're seeing promises partially fulfilled or whether you're feeling the pressure, friends, stop to worship God. Stop to worship God. That's why we're here today. 
We've stopped the other things that we usually do. We've come aside as our catechism today, if you look in the bulletin, reminds us because today is the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. And worship is an act of faith. Isaac didn't just worship God when the harvest was a hundredfold. He didn't stop worshiping God just because the wells were stopped up. No matter what was going on, Isaac was worshiping God. He had God's word. He had God's promises. And he responded with worship at the first opportunity that he had. Isaac did not yet have the promised land in its fullness, but he had some Rehoboth, a little bit of space, a little bit of peace, and that was enough for him to stop and seek God in worship. Psalmist says in Psalm 4 verse 1, you have given me relief. Literally, the word could be space when I was in distress. Where do you turn in your distress? Where do you turn? To what do you turn? To whom do you turn? To the world and its empty promises? To the fridge? To a drink? To a friend? To your phone? To social media? Or to worship and the faithful promises of the living God? So what can we expect in this world? We can expect God's promises partially fulfilled. We can expect pressure from pagan neighbors. We should stop and prioritize our worship. And fourthly and finally, we might also expect peace with penitent neighbors in this world. Peace with penitent neighbors in this world. Boys and girls, the word penitent, it just means someone who is sorry, someone who has stopped doing something they shouldn't have done, who has shown their sorrow for it. And it's really similar to the word repentant. And so peace with penitent neighbors. Just as Isaac is getting unpacked and settling himself down in Beersheba, verse 25, he gets a surprising visit uh, from Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, along with two of his closest advisors. And Isaac immediately is thinking, oh, what now? (coughs) What, What are they going to say this time? Look at verse 27. Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? You know, Isaac here is thinking, oh, what do you want now? I mean, is it not enough that you've driven me off umpteen wells already and pushed me all around the place? What, what is it this time? But actually, look what they say in verse 28. We see plainly that the Lord, Yahweh, is with you, or has been with you, sorry. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between you and us, And let us make a covenant with you. Wow. What a change of attitude from Abimelech and the Philistines. He's done a complete 180, we would say, in his attitude to Isaac. Instead of driving him away, now he wants to bring him close. He wants to make as close an alliance with Isaac as he possibly can by swearing a covenant. We've thought lots about the word covenant, of course. Uh, Back to our covenant renewal last a couple of years ago and also as we looked at the life of Abraham but a covenant of course is a legally binding pledge I promise to do something you promise to do something and it was a way in that world in that time and place of guarding against further tension it it, it took away the possibility of war or conflict between two parties and that's what Abimelech wants he wants peace he wants to keep Isaac as close as he can 
And really, Abimelech, as we might say, he lays it on quite thick. If you look at verse 29, uh, he says that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You may be thinking, hang on a minute, <laughs> done nothing to you but good. You stopped up his wells, you quarreled with him time and time again. They've run Isaac ragged over the years. Yes, but it's interesting that the grace that Isaac shows him here. These people have still had to humble themselves. They, they, they're the ones who have come and they've said, we can see that you're blessed by your God. You have God on your side, Yahweh, the God of Abraham. And we see now that we would be better not to be opposed to you and your God any longer. Verse 29, you are the blessed of the Lord. You're the blessed man, Isaac. It's the language of Psalm 1, isn't it? It's the language of Proverbs that we've been looking at over the last few weeks to be blessed by following the way of the Lord. And so Isaac here prepares a feast for these men. They eat and drink. That was the way of ratifying a covenant. It was a sign of your friendship that you sat down to a meal together. And verse 31 says, they departed from him in peace. They departed from him in peace. No more quarreling. No more division. These penitent pagans now have peace with the blessed man of God. And I wonder in that, friends, do we not have a little reminder of the covenantal peace that is possible between pagan people and the blessed man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have further fulfillment of what God promised Isaac. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Here's one example of that. The, the nation of the Philistines, blessed because they come and make peace with Isaac. And in that, we have a picture of the gospel, of what it is for penitent sinners to come and receive peace from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's been going on through the offspring of Isaac for centuries, through the truly blessed man, Jesus. In Psalm 86, verse 9, the psalmist says, all the nations you have made shall come and Worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. One way or another, friends, that is what is going to happen. That's what our pagan neighbors are going to have to do. Either they will come in repentance and faith and do it, or the Lord Jesus will return and they will be forced to bow the knee before him. And again, that's the question for us today. Are you going to gladly, willingly come to the blessed man of God, are you going to bow the knee willingly and gladly to Jesus or are you going to be forced to bow the knee to him when he appears at the end of time as your judge? I wonder if you've been treating the Lord Jesus the same way Abimelech treated Isaac all those years, distrusting him, pushing him away, refusing to make peace with him. Have you been foolishly trying to claim your life as your own, stopping up your ears the way the Philistines stopped up the wells of Abraham? Have you been driving Jesus away rather than walking towards him in faith? Come to the blessed man today and make peace. He offers you peace. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus can give to you the same things Isaac enjoyed, blessing, even a measure of blessing here and now, but far greater blessing in the future. He will give you strength to endure the pressures of this life. And he will give you long life in the land that he has promised you, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will enjoy perfect peace in that far better world that is still to come. Amen.